out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning. I'm talking to you today live from Cody, Wyoming. Our wild world has gone mobile this past week on a road trip, boondoggle through our old and new west. My friend B and I left Woody Creek in the Roaring Fork Valley behind us just after last week's episode. My last boondoggle boondoggle was uh, in July of last year when I drove out to Butte Falls, Oregon, just outside Medford, for the Condition Taste Aversion Team meeting, which I filled our listeners in on the latest news a couple of weeks ago, along with the uh, updates of the wild trials beginning in the Central Kalahari Game Reserve in Botswana. Anyway, that's Africa, and I'm a long way away from Africa, but still in our wild world of the West. And today we're talking about the wildlife, wilderness, and I guess you could call it the safari experience that can be a really great road trip right, road trip right here at home. So I typically spend my time in Woody Creek, Colorado. It's a tiny little spot outside of Aspen, Colorado. And uh, B and I headed up north to Wyoming and crossed the border near Bags, a little wide spot in the road. And by the time we crossed into Wyoming and left Colorado behind, the winds of the high plain had blown all the stresses of the daily routine right out the windows. I can't tell you how good it feels to be back on the road. And just traveling around and meeting people and seeing our wild world and the fabulous places this country has to offer. Our destination for this trip was uh, the Bridger Tetons and Yellowstone and a few other out-of-the-way spots across the, the, the west. We're hoping to head to Devil's Tower and the Prior mountain range and see the wild mustangs there and if we have time to get into south dakota where uh deadwood and the badlands and mount rushmore are but uh, our t- it's amazing how time just flies when you're following the road and taking all the little turnoffs and having a good time so we'll see how far we get so uh our first 
stop outside of Aspen. Our first night was spent in a little town, an old west town, called Riverton, Wyoming, which was a major stage route along the uh, old Oregon Trail. Pretty much this trip, once we crossed into Wyoming, we've been following the old Oregon Trail. The old Oregon Trail. I'm sorry, I have to turn my volume down. Sorry if you heard that. Um, seems like my friends are online across the world trying to get a hold of me here on Skype. Anyway, so um, we've been following uh, what used to be the old Oregon Trail. And uh, as you drive across the road uh, through the country, uh, there are many incredible little turnout spots where... You can find uh, interesting information plaques as you look out into the landscape. It gives you the history of what's going on. And um, watching and reading this stuff is really important when you're doing your road trip because you learn uh, what created this place that we are living in today, um, the history that we went through to get to where we are today. So our first day was an eight-hour drive uh, up to Riverton, and uh, we were on our way to uh, Jackson and the, the Grand Tetons. Uh, the great thing about driving a trip in open country is it's really hard to hang on to the constant stream of going on in your in your head and your brain. There's just so much open space out there, and you suddenly realize how quiet your head gets. You press the pause button on the tape loop that seems to run constantly in your mind, and just tune in to what's in front of you. Stop and see the funky little roadside spots. Get out. Walk a little and enjoy the journey and the people you meet along the way. It's tourist season out here in the American West. And everyone and their dog, car, boat, kids, grandmas and grandkids are out there on the road. We even met a couple who were from Bozeman, Montana, who'd come down to a fine retreat in Jackson to celebrate a full baby moon. Yes, she was uh, robustly pregnant, and they were on uh, a little celebration of the full moon that happened on uh, July 23rd. And if you happen to be out there looking at it, it was stunning. So we're meeting all kinds of interesting people from all walks of life and everywhere around the world. We've encountered folks from as far as China, Japan, Vietnam, Russia, France, the UK, and closer to home, Florida, Pennsylvania, Oregon, Utah, and California, to name a few. They're all out there enjoying our nation's national parks and the wilderness, wilderness experience, even if it's from a tricked-out mobile recreational vehicle, the ubiquitous RV and camper haulers. B, my friend and I, had no plan other than a general route northwest and then a bit east through Wyoming, a skip over into Montana, and back south again heading back to Colorado, and we'd just wing it along the way. Despite this being full-on tourist season, we found great little spots to stay and eat. The Days Inn in Riverton was a great little spot and great country comfort food at the Trailhead Family Restaurant. Hot cakes as light as your feather pillow. My friend B seems to be out to have a burger in every spot. Grass-fed local beef or elk, and she even tried her taste buds on a bison burger sloppy joe. I've had some darn good meatless meals, because I don't eat the meat, but I wouldn't go quite so far as to call them vegetarian out here in the West, but in most places, pretty darn close. There are the little things that will make your road trip an adventure to remember, 
or one that you'd rather forget. The fun local places and the folks you meet, from the locals to the fellow travelers, that are the lifeblood of the road warrior, whether riding in a Harley, an RV, or your family car. The communities around the national parks are inextricably linked and dependent upon the economics of tourism and the volume of visitors. This lifeblood provides the tax revenue for infrastructure and improvements to the hospitality and labor force, to the park personnel, concessionaires, staff, U.S. Fish and Wildlife wardens, biologists, researchers, geologists, naturalist interpreters, and guides, hunting and fishing, and is all supported by the 3.5 million visitors a year, and that number is growing, that travel through the parks, most of them in the spring and summer. But there is a strong winter presence here, too, in the Rocky Mountain and Historic West, from skiing, backcountry, snowmobiling, hunting, and dog sledding. One thing in common through all the folks is the seeking of that exhilaration reminiscent of the days of discovery. And I tell you, it can still be found. All you have to do is have a little patience, uh, some sort of transportation, whether it be a horse or a four-wheel vehicle, and you can find it out there as long as you just hit the road, take your time, and enjoy what there is to see. Modern as we all are, there is still something that likes our heart rate when we pass through these mountains, uh, the Rocky Mountain Range, the Grand Tetons, Yellowstone, the Old West. When you see a bison right next to your car or a bear and an elk moseying along doing what it does in the places it was meant to be. Many of the visitors, uh, the travelers that are coming through the park, are typically urban dwellers in their everyday world and are seeing this wilderness and wildlife for the first time. It's wonderful to see the expression on folks' faces when they spot their first wild animal. It's a good thing to remember, always, that these animals are wild. They are very habituated in many cases. That means they're used to seeing people around. And they may seem tame enough to walk up to and pet. But this is a really bad idea. There are volumes of books, notices, and stories about foolhardy visitors who get too close or step out of bounds when simply respecting the wildlife and the landscape is so much easier. It's a thrill enough being in these places, testing your knowledge and your abilities in the wilderness without having to press your luck or risk your life for that added adrenaline fix of the far too close encounter. Another good idea when headed out on a road trip is to go with an open and friendly mindset. Be open to experiences, whether good or bad, and not let the less fun aspects or the tourists get to you. There's always bound to be delays, road work, unexpected weather and such, like the hailstorm we caught at the tail end of uh, East Yellowstone near Lake Village. It's all part of the journey, and usually, eventually, you'll be able to laugh at it, or at least it'll be something you will always remember, and that marks a place in your personal history. On the way to Riverton, we passed by old Colorado towns with names that reflect their history. Newcastle, Silt, Rifle, where you can pick up the Cow Pie Daily newspaper and find out everybody's business. It's great to pick up these little local daily rags in the little towns you pass through, and you can find out who's who, what's what, and some good old-fashioned silliness, like in the Rifle Cow Pie. 
the uh, silly little story about the hostess Twinkies that terrorized retailers in the rifled big box store. A little riff about rogue Twinkies flying off the shelves and terrorizing people. This is not a true story. But more seriously, it's a clever message about our food system and the junk we find ourselves eating, especially when there's so much great local and tasty food to be had all around. Once into Wyoming, our drive through north through Riverton and on to Jackson, as I said, generally followed the Oregon Trail. So there are many little roadside pull-offs to historical markers and the information signs that give you great history. Upon reading these and seeing the old photographs and survey maps and bits of journals from the early explorers who came west for settlement, the Indian Wars, the Army, and gold, you look up to the modern road and RV and sport utility vehicles and wonder in awe at how, not so very long ago, our world was a very, very different place. Horse-drawn wagons, the first railroads, the first Model T Fords, the first telegraph and the first electricity, the first telephone, and then the wonder of indoor plumbing and running water. There were no cell phones, no TV, no computers, no Internet. Riverton has a great little museum of all these items, and it's well worth the visit. And the other thing that's great about being on a road trip is the disconnection from the technology. But right now, this technology is helping me bring to you live our wild world from Cody, Wyoming. So we'll be right back with more right after the break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild. No life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. 
Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back to the Wild World uh, Western Boondoggle. Uh, I'd love to hear from you if you'd like to call in. However, today, since I'm on the road, uh, we're not getting emails uh, for this particular episode, so I'd love to hear from you. Um, so to get back to the journey, from Riverton, B&I, we headed north and west, entering into the Bridger-Teton wilderness area, which is mostly most widely known as the Grand Tetons, and it's a historical old town of Jackson, also known as Jackson Hole, which I'm sorry to say is even more kitschy, kitschy than Aspen. I think it's the signage, all these national chains and uh, neon, rather glaring advertising. Aspen has sign codes, and I can see the benefit of such, but the main drag of Jackson still looks western in spite of this, and underneath all the glitz and bling, there is an astounding history, and it's fun to look for. Jackson is also the home of the Best Wildlife Film Festival and the National Museum of Wildlife Art. Both boast the best that wildlife art and film have to offer at the yearly uh, film festival and incredible exhibits. Right now, the current exhibit going on at the National Museum of Wildlife Art is a fabulous journey of wild places from National Geographic. Uh, also there at the museum is um, wildlife art dating back from the 1800s, depicting all sorts of history from the Indian Wars to the bison to the white hunters. It's an astounding look at where we've been. As on most road trips, the second day behind the wheel, you start settling in and get a bit goal-oriented, and you're crossing a lot of wide-open spaces with not much to offer in the way of comforts, like restrooms and food, and you get to that point where you just have to stop, stretch, and eat something. Well, on this trip, that happened to be a wide spot on the road by the name of Du Bois, Wyoming. It is literally a wide spot on the road at the main junction of two crossroads uh, between north, south, and east and west, and it has taken complete advantage of this prestigious bit of real estate. Building up an old town like a western boardwalk filled with tourist shops and the ubiquitous t-shirts, curios, and even a skin art tattoo parlor. We went into the only open restaurant that seemed to serve real food and felt like we'd just stepped into the restaurant at the end of the universe. There, we started chatting with two women travelers, also on a road trip, one from Hawaii and the other from Oregon, who somehow, and I'm not quite sure, met up from Washington and into Du Bois, Wyoming. It was here that we learned that it is illegal to hunt or kill a Sasquatch in Oregon and that there is an iPhone app that comes in handy when you're traveling and want to know a bit more about the place you're at. Or maybe I should say a bit more about what's not at the place you're at. And that's the Ghost Radar app. From the conversation, I gathered it's a must-have in Thermopolis, Wyoming. I'm not exactly sure why and no. I have not yet downloaded it, but I just might as we head on across for the rest of our trip. 
We spent a couple of nights in Riverton, driving through the Grand Tetons, which seemed to, uh, I'm sorry, we spent a couple of nights in Jackson Hole. Uh, and during the day, we would go and sightsee through the Grand Tetons. Tetons, and they seem to suddenly appear on the horizon coming up as you come up from the south. They're an astounding uplift of jagged mountains and glaciers that formed millions of years ago, and you can see all around you the geological time of Earth. Standing there gazing at the Tetons makes you feel pretty small and insignificant. Yet also, everywhere around you, our human impact can be seen. The repercussions of extended human existence and our modern way of life on the larger scale. Environmental and ecosystem changes of our relatively short-term existence here. It certainly makes you think about reducing your footprint where it counts, where you live, in your daily life, because it would be a damn shame if our not-so-far-in-the-future generations don't have the opportunity to see our last remaining wild places and spaces. Now I'm going to give you a little background about the Tetons. Um, it wouldn't be Ellie in our wild world if I didn't give you some basic information about the things that are out there that we travel through. So, at approximately 310,000 acres, the Grand Tetons National Park includes the major peaks of the 40-mile-long Teton Range, as well as most of the northern sections of the valley known as Jackson Hole. It is only 10 miles south of Yellowstone National Park, to which it is connected. Along with surrounding national forests, these three protected areas constitute the almost 18 million acre Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, one of the largest intact mid-latitude temperate ecosystems in the world. Human history of the Grand Teton region dates back at least 11,000 years, when the first nomadic hunter-gatherer, Paleo-Indians, began migrating into the region during warmer months, pursuing food and supplies. In the early 19th century, the first white explorers encountered the eastern Shoshone natives. Between 1810 and 1840, the region attracted fur trading companies that vied for control of the lucrative beaver pelt trade. U.S. government expeditions to the region commenced in the mid-19th century as an offshoot of exploration in Yellowstone, with the first permanent white settlers in Jackson Hole arriving in the 1880s. The efforts to preserve the region as a national park commenced in the late 19th century. And in 1929, Grand Teton National Park was established, protecting the major peaks of the Teton Range. You'll find through reading information placards or a search on the Internet, which I also advise for the first-time visitor and traveler, to learn about the history of the places you're going to visit. Here in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, you'll find many of the names of places and landmarks come from the old mountain men that explored it, and the French and Canadian trappers, miners, and politicians who sought to tame the wilderness. Sometimes they succeeded, often they did not. The Valley of Jackson Hole remained in private ownership until the 1930s, when conservationists led by John D. Rockefeller, Jr., began purchasing land in Jackson Hole to be added to the existing national park. Against public opinion and with repeated congressional efforts to repeal these measures, much of Jackson Hole was set aside for protection as the Jackson Hole National Monument in 1943. 
The monument was abolished in 1950, and most of the monument land was added to the Grand Teton Park. Grand Teton National Park is named for Grand Teton, the tallest mountain in the Teton Range. The naming of the mountains is attributed to the early 19th century French-speaking trappers. At 13,775 feet, Grand Teton abruptly rises more than 7,000 feet above Jackson Hole, almost 850 feet higher than Mount Owen, the second highest summit in the range. The park has numerous lakes, including a 15-mile-long Jackson Lake, as well as streams branching off the main stem of the Snake River. Though in a state of recession, a dozen small glaciers persist at the higher elevations of the range, near the highest peaks. Some of the rocks in the park are the oldest found in any U.S. national park and have been dated at nearly 2.7 billion years but after a day of glorious uh, outdoors and sightseeing, like any self-respecting tourist, we also had to do the town thing. You know, window shop, buy tchotchkes for your friends, and get great local food, which we did at the local restaurant. A slow food farm-to-table eatery that I swear has the best french fries on the face of the planet. It'd be worth your while just to stop there and get some. You won't regret it. Next to being one of the most stunning mountain ranges in the U.S., there are other things to do in Jackson that offer a wilderness experience if you're not into climbing, hiking, backpacking, or hunting. Just out of town limits is the National Elk Refuge, a wild and safe haven, so to speak, established in 1912 by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to provide winter habitat and preserve the Jackson elk herd. The refuge is an integral component of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and is bounded by the Grand Teton National Park and the wilderness area of the Bridger Teton National Forest. The refuge receives nearly one million visitors annually and is one of the first big game refuges established and was created as a result of public interest in the survival of the Jackson elk herd. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, as more people settled in Jackson Hole, homesteads, cattle, fences, and farming had encroached on the traditional elk migration pathways and wintering areas. Severe winters reduced elk forage and decreased habitat, contributed to the starvation and deaths of thousands of elks in the Jackson Hole area. Homesteaders uh, and other locals needed to protect their domestic cattle herds and haystacks. They still wanted to have large, healthy elk herds in the valley. As a result of persistent action by Jackson Hole residents, the state of Wyoming, and the U.S. Congress, the National Elk Refuge was established to provide a protected wintering ground of 1,760 acres for the elk. Today, the refuge encompasses nearly 25,000 acres. The refuge is managed to provide winter habitat for approximately half of the nearly 14,000 elk in the Jackson herd for one of the largest wintering concentrations of with nearly 1,000 animals. In addition to the elk, the largest free-roaming bison herd in the National Wildlife Ref Refuge System, about 800 animals also winter at the refuge. Along with a variety of waterfowl, including trumpeter swans, can be seen on nearly the 1,600 acres of open water and marshlands. At least 47 mammal species and nearly 175 species of birds have been observed in the refuge. Some notable species include moose, bighorn sheep, pronghorn, gray wolves, mountain lions, bald eagles, and peregrine falcons.
The refuge grasslands are managed to produce as much natural forage for elk as possible through irrigation, seeding, prescribed burning, and other management activities. These practices enhance the the elk winter habitat and reduce the need for supplemental feeding. The number of elk wintering on the refuge is limited to avoid overuse of the range and to avoid the potential spread of diseases common when herds are overcrowded. Some of the more complex and controversial refuge activities and issues include that growing herd of bison wintering on the range and competing with elk for forage. Supplemental feeding of elk and bison, the management hunting program, and concentrated elk and bison populations on a limited wintering area increases the potential for disease and other wildlife and traveling through other wildlife species who use the refuge. The refuge, the elk, and the bison herds are cooperatively managed with other agencies, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Park Service, and the Bison and Elk Management Environmental Impact Statement and Plan to develop the future management of these animals and the refuge in the Grand Teton National Park. So it looks like we're about headed into another break here. So uh, we'll be right back. Once again, I'd love to hear from you if you'd like to call in. We're coming to you live from Cody, Wyoming today. And uh, we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild. No life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back to our wild world on the road boondoggle. We're heading, we've headed through Jackson, Wyoming and uh, up to West Yellowstone. So from Jackson, we headed into one of the world's greatest landscapes on earth and the very first national park, Yellowstone. Founded on March 1st, 1872 by President Roosevelt, Roosevelt and is celebrated its 140th anniversary this past spring. We entered through the south gate and headed up the grand loop through the lower geyser basin which includes the most famous geyser on earth old faithful and that she is she still shoots off just about every hour on the hour uh give or take 10 or 15 minutes and uh attracts thousands of visitors every hour on the hour. There's nothing like having a picnic lunch, people watching, chatting, and then watching one of the greatest spectacles on Earth, a 3.2-minute plume of 1,000 degree and higher water spurting from the depths of the Earth. This area of the continental U.S. is my old stomping grounds. I spent my impressionable formative years at a little ranch just outside the east gate of Yellowstone called Rimrock Ranch, a working cattle and dude vacation ranch uh, that uh, catered to the urban tourist who wanted to get away. I learned at an early age just how magnificent our wild world is, taking a trip via pack horse, taking trips via pack horse and mule teams into the Bridger Yellowstone backcountry, where you're totally dependent upon your horse, your companions, and the little bring with you, and all the little that you bring with you, an all-weather coat, your hat, gloves, boots, jeans, and your toothbrush. Rimrock Ranch was opened in 1955 by Glenn and Alice Fales. Glenn, one of the first men to receive the Sacagawea and Eaton Awards for Best in Conservation and Land Use throughout the greater uh, Bridger Yellowstone ecosystem, in guiding both tourists and hunters through this immense area. Safely, I might add. Glenn and Alice provided me and my siblings while growing up with all the outdoor education we needed to know. That wilderness is to be respected. That ranching, cattle, and hunting is a sustainable and deeply rewarding way of life. With its hardships from open range and cattle where weather and predators can make or break your livelihood. In hindsight, these many years later, I realize it was Rimrock Ranch that laid the foundation of my love of wildlife and the out-of-doors experience. Then... A gentler type of recreation, without all the sporting gear, where you leave your world behind and enter into another lifestyle. Today, Rimrock Ranch is run by Glenn and Alice's son, Gary, and his wife, Dee Dee, along with members of their extended family. It is still a homey and fabulous place to visit, and uh, any one of the guests you talk to is having a great time, and I suggest booking a stay there if you feel like you want a great experience that gets you all you need of the West. I visited Rimrock just about every 10 years since then, and uh, yesterday stopped by and said hi and paid my respect, and the place still looks the same. 
It's a it's it's wonderful to know that some things really don't change and you can go back and have the same kind of experience that you had when you were young. So a little history about Yellowstone. The human history of Yellowstone region goes back more than 11,000 years. From then until the very recent past, many groups of Native Americans used the park as their homes, hunting grounds, and trans transportation routes. Today, it, many people use it for recreation, backwoods hunting, uh, backwoods traveling, hiking, uh, camping, and you name it. The issue to always remember is you are in a wilderness area, and there is wildlife, and it is not tame. These traditional uses of Yellowstone lands continued until a little over 200 years ago when the first people of European descent found their way into the park. In 1872, a country that had not yet seen its first centennial established Yellowstone as the first national park in the world. A new concept was born, and with it, a new way for people to preserve and protect the best of what they had for the benefit and enjoyment of future generations. The first detailed expedition to the Yellowstone area was the Cook Folsom Peterson Expedition of 1869, which consisted of three privately funded explorers. In 1871, 11 years after the first failed effort, Ferdinand V. Hayden was finally able to make another attempt to explore the region. He was sponsored uh, via the government and returned to Yellowstone with a second larger expedition of the, with a geological survey in 1871. He is responsible for compiling one of the most comprehensive reports on Yellowstone, which included large format photographs by Win William Henry Jackson, thus Jackson Hole, Wyoming, as well as paintings by Thomas Moran. Uh, both of these photographs and these paintings you can see in the National Wildlife Art Museum outside Jackson Hole. Hayden's report helped to convince the U.S. Congress to withdraw this region from public auction. As I said, on March 1, 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant signed the Act of Dedication Law that created Yellowstone National Park. Hayden, while not the only person to have thought of creating a park in the Yellowstone region, was the park's first and most enthusiastic advocate. He believed in setting aside the area as a pleasure ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people, and warned that there were those who would come and make merchandise of these beautiful specimens. Worrying the area could face the same fate as Niagara Falls had at that time, he concluded the site should be free as the air or water. In his report to the Committee on Public Lands, he concluded that if the bill failed to become law, the vandals who are now waiting to enter into this wonderland will, in a single season, despoil, beyond recovery, these remarkable curiosities, which have required all the cunning skill of nature for thousands of years to prepare. Hayden and his 1871 party recognized that Yellowstone was a priceless treasure, which would become rarer with time. He wished for others to see and experience it as well. Eventually, the railroads, and sometime after that, the automobile would make that possible. The park was not set aside strictly for ecological purposes, however. The designation Pleasure Ground was not an invitation to create an amusement park. Hayden imagined something akin to the scenic resorts and baths in England, Germany, and Switzerland. 
He spent about a month exploring the re- region, collecting specimens and naming sites of interest. Uh, several writers and attorneys of the day uh, had become uh, members of the expedition and helped to document and write and paint and journal all that they saw and uh, which helped to get the act passed in front of Congress to create our world's and our nation's first national park. One of the writings uh, detailed uh, and, and detailed articles about his observations for the Helena Herald newspaper between 1870 and 71. He essentially restated comments made uh, by others that uh, the acting Montana territorial governor, Francis Meager, who had previously commented that the region, region should be protected. Others made similar suggestions, and in 1871, uh, a letter from Jay Cook to Mr. Hayden wrote that his friend Congressman William D. Kelly had also suggested that that Congress pass a bill reserving the Great Geyser Basin as a public park forever. The act of dedication of the park reads, An act to set apart a certain tract of land lying near the headwaters of the Yellowstone River as a public park, be it enacted by the Senate and House representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that the tract of land in the territories of Montana and Wyoming is hereby reserved and withdrawn from settlement, occupancy, or sale under the laws of the United States, and dedicated and set apart as a public park or pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people and all persons who shall locate, settle upon, or occupy the same or any part thereof, except as hereinafter provided, shall be considered trespassers and removed from there. This declaration was approved was approved on March 1st, 1872, and signed by James G. Blaine, Speaker of the House, Shiler Colfax, Vice President of the United States, and President of the Senate, and Ulysses S. Grant, President of the United States. However, that sounds a little bit simple, and uh, along with this glorious history of wanting to preserve Yellowstone and all its uh, uh, inhabitants and wilderness, there was considerable local opposition uh, during its early years. Some locals feared that the regional economy would be unable to thrive if there remained strict federal prohibitions against resource development or settlement settlement within the park boundaries. Local entrepreneurs advocated reducing the size of the park so that mining, hunting, and logging activities could be developed, and numerous bills were introduced to Congress by Montana representatives who sought to remove the federal land use restrictions. Today, we can see that these restrictions and this land use and this foresight by our forefathers to set aside this great tract of land has certainly had its benefits. All the communities that surround these ecosystems are inextricably linked and dependent upon the tourist flow and the landscape and the wildlands, the national forests, and the park itself for their livelihoods. During the 1870s and 1880s, Native American tribes were effectively excluded from the national park. A number of tribes had made seasonal use of the Yellowstone area, but only year-round residents were small bands of western Shoshone known as the Sheep Eaters. They left the area under the assurances of a treaty negotiated in 1868, under which the Sheep Eaters ceded their lands but retained the right to hunt in Yellowstone. 
the United States never ratified the treaty and refused to recognize the claims of the sheep eaters or any other tribe that made use of Yellowstone. The Nez Perce Band associated with Chief Joseph, numbering about 750 people, passed through Yellowstone National Park in 13 days. They were being pursued by the U.S. Army and entered into the National Park about two weeks after the Battle of the Big Hole. So we have a checkered history going on here through the West between the Indian Wars, the White Hunters, the near decimation of the great bison herds, um, and all these incredible landscapes. So today, we can still enjoy this incredible landscape, and we should still respect uh, how to behave and act and be responsible for our national park system through our federal system, our U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and our tax dollars. And yet, uh, we've also learned a lot in how to let others live, our non-human neighbors live and exist also within the park. So, it looks like we're headed into another break, and uh, I'd love to hear from you if you'd like to call in. We're coming to you live from Cody, Wyoming today, and we'll be right back after the break. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. I'm uh, giving you all some uh, nice, uh, interesting background and history on one of our nation's and our world's greatest national park, and that is Yellowstone National Park. It spans an area of 3,468,000 
uh, square miles comprising lakes, canyons, rivers, and mountain ranges. Yellowstone Lake is one of the largest high-altitude lakes in North America and is centered over the Yellowstone Caldera, the largest supervolcano on the continent. The caldera is considered an active volcano, as is the entire Yellowstone ecosystem. It is alive, it is breathing, it is functioning, it is constantly venting, and that's what creates the geysers and the geyser basins, the steam holes, the whirls, and the vent. It is an eerily stunning landscape, especially in the early morning when the uh, steam from the... Uh, the earth venting through hits the, the cold air of the morning and a bison walks by or elk walk by. It's a stunning landscape. Be sure to have your camera. The caldera is... Uh the caldera has erupted with tremendous force several times in the last two million years. Half of the world's geothermal features are in Yellowstone, and it's fueled by this ongoing volcanism. Lava flows and rocks from volcanic eruptions cover most of the land area of Yellowstone, and uh, during its original eruption several million years ago, ash was uh, seen to fall all the way to into Canada, California, south down into Mexico, and as far east as Texas and Nebraska. It was an amazing, astonishing, uh, cataclysmic event uh, that shaped pretty much the entire western uh, range of this, this area of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, Yellowstone, as I said, is, uh, is active, and in 1959, there was uh, an earthquake just west of Yellowstone at the Hebgen Lake, which damaged roads, slid houses into the lake, and some structures in the park were completely destroyed. In the northwest section of the park, new geysers were found, and many existing hot springs became turbid. It was the most powerful earthquake to hit the re region in recent, hi recent history. Other recent history that uh, it has taken place in the park and changed uh, the way we manage the park, we being the U.S. Forest Service and uh, the government and how we look at, at science, is uh, the wildfires during the summer of 1988. They were the largest in the history of the park and approximately 793,880 acres, or 36% of the park, was impacted by fires leading to a systematic reevaluation of fire management policies. The fire season of 88 was considered normal until a combination of drought and heat by mid-July contributed to an extreme fire danger. On Black Sunday, August 20th, 1988, strong winds expanded the fire rapidly and more than a 250,000 acres burned. The evidence of that is still visible, both the scope and the destruction and the amazing regrowth. Hundreds of species of animals, birds, fish, and reptiles have been documented, including several that are either endangered or threatened. The vast forests and grasslands also include unique species of plants. Yellowstone Park is the largest and most famous megafauna location in the continental United States. It's home to grizzly bears, black bears, wolves, free-ranging herds of bison and elk that live in the park along with the smaller ungulates of deer and the mesocarnivores of coyotes, foxes, and of course the raptors, golden and bald eagles, osprey, and hawks. At any given time, at any given place in the park, you will see 
magnificence of not only landscape geysers, a living planet, and tremendous wildlife. Yellowstone National Park is the centerpiece of the 20 million acre Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, a region that includes the Grand Teton National Park, the adjacent national forests, and expansive wilderness areas in those forests. The ecosystem is the largest remaining continuous stretch of mostly undeveloped pristine land in the continental United States, considered the world's largest intact ecosystem in the northern temperate zone although the area is really more subalpine than temperate. We spent three days and nights in West Yellowstone, a great little town uh, on the east side. So we got a great drive coming up from Jackson, uh, entering through the south gate, through the lower geyser basin. Spent about an hour watching, actually two hours. We got to see Old Faithful go off twice and listen to the people and the oohs and the ahs and just the astonishing fact that this natural phenomena happens pretty much on schedule every day and has been for millions of years. And then, of course, you get the uh, tourist questions of, oh, what time does uh, Old Faithful get turned off? So you, the national park personnel and the concessionaires usually have a bit of fun at the tourist expense and, expense and say, oh, it usually gets turned off at about 11 o'clock at night. So we traveled through uh, Yellowstone from West Yellowstone all the way up to Mammoth Hot Springs to visit uh, the old Fort Sheridan up there, which was the first defense of the U.S. Army when they created and uh, set aside the park for protection and to keep the uh, Native Americans out. And then we uh, went on down through the upper geyser basin. And then we uh, went from West Yellowstone all the way across to East Yellowstone to enter out the East Gate and get to Coyote, uh, excuse me, Cody, Wyoming's. In between all this, we visited the Hayden and Lamar Valleys, which is wolf country. We were incredibly privileged to see just the perfect, uh, it, it, for perfect photographer's light at sunset, a wolf and a grizzly bear doing what looked like a dance out in the long grasses. The wolf had made an elk kill, the grizzly was interested, and the spectacle looked like something out of Dances with Wolves, only without Kevin Costner. When you see a wolf next to a grizzly, even though even through 22x binoculars, the size comparison of the two animals is mind-boggling. Wolves are a whole lot bigger than you imagine, and a grizzly is absolutely huge. And that brings us to another huge animal abundant in the park, the American bison. When one of these guys, or gals, stands in the road, there's little you can do but stop, wait, and be patient. And have your camera ready. So we're going to be, uh, I think what I'm going to do is pick up uh, next week with some more journeys and some interviews and bits from uh, travelers that we've met around the world. And if you'd like to follow along on a visual journey of this little road trip boondoggle, please uh, check out our Facebook page, Wild Eyes Foundation or Ellie Weiss on Facebook, and check out some of the photo albums and the posts that are going up. And uh, in the meantime, we're going to get out and enjoy some more of our wild world as we head over to Lovell and the Prior Mountain Range and the Wild Mustangs and on over to Devil's Tower. So we'll see you next week from the road. And in the meantime, get out and enjoy our wild world. Thanks. This is Ellie Weiss. Mm -hmm.
thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.